Some actors are good if they have studied theater, for example, which requires a lot of reading and a lot of, you know, uh, strong Arabic skills. So now there are pools of narrators. You have some names, you know, within the industry, you have famous names as well. So, you oh, know. Oh, that's so interesting. Are known, so the voice. The voice, exactly. Oh, that's fantastic. Because like there is the nose. Right? Like, you know, people who are, the smell the perfumes, the exactly. nose. Like, there are voices. And so some I, people. Like, throw in my hat into this, the voice. Happy to consider yeah. your, <laughs> your you. sample. Thank, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hasha Montasir. If you're joining us for the first time today, hit the follow button in your podcast player to get alerted when we have a new episode. If you're using Apple Podcasts, for example, it's the plus sign in the top right corner. You can also listen to our extensive catalog of previous episodes on our website, www.thelighthouse.ee slash podcast. We've had some amazing guests on the show over the years. Isabel Abulhul, founder of Emirates Litfest, Mohammed Orfali, founder of Orfali Bros, Egyptian author and friend Nadia Wasif, pitmaster Hatem Matar, and so many more. On the show today, we're talking publishing, particularly in the context of children's books, particularly in the context of children's books that are written in Arabic. With us today, Yasmina Jraisati. Yasmina is a literary agent under her own agency, Raya, and also serves as publishing manager for audiobook platform Storytel. So when it comes to children's books, please indulge me for a moment. I have a lot of views, <laughs> as you can imagine. First of all, I'm known to have gone through pretty much every bookstore I've found that specializes on children's bookstores globally to scour for books, both for my children and for The Lighthouse. Now, one of my pet peeves is when it comes to children's books in Arabic, the selection is very limited. We've had some great initiatives coming out of the UAE and other places in the last couple of years. Kalimat comes to mind and a few others that are very niche, but it's certainly not at the level that we need and certainly not in the magnitude that we need. Um, so you'll see that today my conversation with Yasmina really centers around this topic because I really wanted to understand from someone who's in the field, why is this uh, the case? Why don't we have more Arabic children's book? Why can't we get our children excited about reading in Arabic? And why does every parent that I know that's an Arabic speaker complain about the fact that they're not able to find any suitable book for their kids? So Yasmina and I go in depth about the fragmented state of publishing in the region, how each of us as parents have seen challenges with our own kids reading Arabic literature or reading anything in Arabic for that matter, and some of the efforts that are being made to make reading more attainable and frankly, cool for the youth. I'm so excited, I was telling my wife this morning about speaking to you for so many, uh, for so many reasons, beyond you as a person being a very um, inviting person to speak to. Uh, I'm judging from our previous conversations a couple of years ago, uh, when I met you and you came and you were very generous and helping us to the lighthouse to pick essentially um, children's books in Arabic for, for the lighthouse for, uh, to sell because we had, and I'll start there, we had this issue of we knew that children's books are extremely popular amongst our clientele, and they remain very popular. In fact, our children's books as a category is our best-selling category for food, uh, food and drinks, which tells you something. We'll dive into that. But the bulk of the books were in English. 
we had a very small selection of French books, which you've chosen as well. Mm. And we had uh, a non-existing selection at the time of Arabic books. And as a father uh, of two children as well, I, that presented a dilemma for me, um, for my wife, for many of us. And you helped us at the time curate a selection of hand-picked books, essentially, for children that we then uh, offered our customers. That brings me to kind of this, your entire ethos when it comes to, to, to choosing this as a profession and what you do and your involvement with Arabic language and the written word. Let's start there and give us a bit of a synopsis. Um, so, yeah, first of all, yeah, I remember very well how it started uh, at the Lighthouse. And I, got, I was very excited with the idea of, you know, being able to have like my favorite collection of books on, a, on, yes. on you know, the same place on display. They looked so great, you know, so, so I'm very happy to have contributed to that. I mean, it's a very personal story, in fact. Um, as you can hear from my accent, I was a raised French speaker, which is the case. Oh. <laughs> I am not French. <laughs> I know that. Uh, which is the case of a lot of Lebanese people. Yes. Um, so, so, you know, when I growing up, I wondered why did my parents, you know, make this choice? I don't think they ever really thought about it. It's just that probably they thought I'd pick up Arabic because I'm Lebanese. I live in Lebanon. Why wouldn't I, right? So, but somehow it wasn't enough to be in in Lebanon, and you know, you live in your surroundings. Everybody speaks French around you, and so it's much later, like as a teenager, where I really felt it was a limit. Uh, to socializing and to so so very young, I was very aware of language and what it gives you and what it deprives you from and how it socially uh, situates you in the landscape. Can I just interrupt here for a second? Because um, I, doing research for this uh, podcast today, I read one one of your interviews. You were talking about this, and what I found so interesting is when we think about French in particular and what it means in terms of social signaling in Lebanon and other parts of the Arab world. In Egypt, where I grew up, not that dissimilar, by the way. My grandmother only spoke to my mother and her siblings in French. Mm. Typically, of course, there's a signaling, and the signaling has to do with social strata and class. And you were talking about it being something that was actually limiting, which is very interesting because for a lot of people, it's actually aspirational. And in fact, they would go out of their way so I always tell a story of some of my friends in very bad French, <laughs> insisting on speaking in French because there's a signaling effect. Yes. And you spoke about it in the interview and you're speaking about it now again in more limiting terms. So that's interesting. Did you feel it confined you in a kind of orbit of being Christian Lebanese, obviously, and a social milieu. I think you spoke about that as well. I mean, to be fair, French brought me a lot. I was able to uh, study in France. I did my PhD there. I was, and this is also how I came into publishing later. So it's not that the language didn't bring me much. It did a lot. But at the same time, depriving me from Arabic uh, was the limiting part. And, yes. and the, fa the fact that I was speaking French, as you said, like uh, it's it's uh, it's a signal. So it's at the same time as a teenager, I lived in a stigmata. So if you're like surrounded by kids, they know immediately who you are, right? And you didn't like that. That's what I'm like trying that. to get to. Exactly. I didn't like that. Why? Because it wasn't my it wasn't my decision. Uh, uh -huh. I wanted to be able to decide uh, who uh, to reveal to, right? You know, maybe this guy or the, that girl I just met right now. I just don't want to immediately tell them where I come from. You know, mm. now today it kind of changed. Uh, actually, a lot of teenagers are like speaking more Arabic. Uh, you know, regardless of whether they're girls or boys. But when I was growing up, um, French was more like a, the girls' language, the proper language, and boys were like cursing in Arabic. And you know, and you had this, and this also kind of annoyed <laughs> me. You know, because I, I was I was really like put cornered in so many different ways. Um, and, and as a result, um, I would just not speak. 
that was my way of socializing. So I had this mysterious aura. <laughs> I would just sit there and laugh at the jokes and make some very small comments, but I would not speak because I didn't want people to know immediately where I was from. And so slowly I would reveal by, by silence, actually. So I wouldn't speak and then slowly I would start speaking. But by that point, after a few encounters, people were more willing to accept me. But so I, I had to develop strategies to be able to make friends, uh, you know, outside the basically the circle that was um, Confi that was confined that we were kind of dictated upon you. Exactly. Would you consider yourself a rebellious as a teenager growing up in, in Beirut? So my my mother and I have different views on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this. I was yesterday. This is completely not related, but I was yesterday bumped into someone who was also on this podcast. And she told me, well, you know, ever since I did this podcast, my mother listened to it and I complained about her and she never <laughs> forgave me. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm, I need to be careful when it comes to mother, mother, yeah. uh, daughter and, and mother, son uh, relationships. Yeah, no, I'm joking. She, she know. knows all of this, of course. Um, I think she, I wasn't a rebellious teenager, but I, later, yes. So I think my 20s were rebellious in ways where I didn't think they were rebellious, but my entourage felt them like being my, my being rebellious. I mean, there, there were things I really um, held on to because they meant a lot to me and that didn't make social sense, let's put it this way. It's a very interesting idea, right? This idea of language and what language signifies and how we grew up, especially in the, in the, in the Middle East in the Arab world because of all these influences, French, English, et cetera, et cetera. In Egypt, as I said, again, growing up, I had a similar experience. I went to a German school, actually. Mm. So this was a bit off, you know, but we spoke at home mostly Arabic and English. My mother spoke French to her siblings and her mother. But my cousins, for example, were in a French school and I was in a German school. When I spoke to my mother in French, she would respond in English because she didn't yeah. see me as part of that gang, even though I'm a son. And I'm nothing against my mother. I love my mother. <laughs> I, I, we had a very close relationship. But I'm talking about all these social signals that you're talking about. Yeah. And I was very aware of it. And as a result, even though I learned French in school and grew up speaking it, um, I was always more reluctant because the signal... So going back to what you're saying, what sort of, that's not your comfort zone. Yeah. And of course it wasn't compared to the other languages. And today I find myself in a situation where my kids are in a Swiss school, so they speak uh, French as well. And when we are traveling somewhere or not, an, and, and we speak in French here and there, again, I see the signaling. They don't see it as limiting because it's not the only thing they speak. So I wanted to get to that. So perhaps that was a limiting factor, that you felt a bit of a straitjacket. The thing is, and that also connects to my interest in Arabic literature and uh, so much that I've you know, uh, worked in recently. Uh, the thing with Arabic is that having learned it at school, I was learning mostly classical Arabic, uh, you know, and, and so I had no uh, accent. Uh, you know, so I, I would speak like books would speak. Yes. I would pronounce it like I was taught to pronounce it at school. And so the kids at school would, would laugh, you know, you know how kids laugh because I'd say thelj instead of telj, for example, you know, nobody says thelj. And I can see this in my son today. So I, I chose to speak to him in Arabic since his birth. And, and it's like, it's of course, for me, it's obvious. It was a lot of work because it, you know, didn't it's come naturally at first. Work. 
But now I can't speak with him in any other... I mean, it feels very natural today. And does he speak with a Lebanese accent? Or? He does, but now okay. school kind of confuses him. So he, he because we say Baqara, obviously, in Arabic, in Lebanese. And so he comes and he says Baqara. I'm like, you know, yes, Baqara is the book <laughs> version. <laughs> you know, but when you talk to me, you have to say Baqara with, you know, cow. Uh, and so he, he gets very, you know, uh, confused between the Fusha and uh, How the How old is he? Uh, seven. Seven, yeah. He'll eventually learn to... Do both. Yeah, I'm hoping. That's no, for sure. The, yeah, that's for what I sure. hope. So as you know, I'm married to a Saudi and my kids speak to me um, while my daughter refuses to speak Arabic. That's the whole thing. I mean, mm -hmm. she learns it, but refuses to actually speak it, yeah. which is I want to get into not my daughter. I want to get into this whole thing about Arabic with children because it's very problematic. Yes. But with my son, who's much more comfortable and also especially May spoke to them in Arabic from day one, but he's able now to look at me, speak to me with an Egyptian dialect and speak to me with a Saudi dialect. Amazing. Uh, he confuses it sometimes, and he goes to Fosha sometimes. So it's not perfect, but I think as long as I try to not wear my judgmental German hat, yeah. <laughs> and not judge, you know, that it's not perfection, yeah. he's okay. So we try to kind of just let him make mistakes, but I think, he, and he's 12, that's why I'm saying age-wise. Yeah. So you, if there's enough conf confidence, they'll get there. I mean, there is confidence today, especially because I, I really... You spoke to him from day one. Exactly. And this is like, this is the go-to language between us. But my concern is the lack of incentive, uh, especially in Dubai, where exactly right. English is more like the dominant language, but not only in Dubai. Like, you no. know, um, um, I mean, and that brings me back to books. Uh, you know, it, uh, you know, we, I modestly certainly played a role in that, but he loves books. He's obsessed with stories. Uh, you know... I'm sure you played uh, quite a major <laughs> role in that. <laughs> <laughs> but so during COVID, like he'd listen to audiobooks, you know, in, yeah, in French and English. He, 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 and to today, like he can, he can read with his ears. I can see it, you know, and it's, 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 a, it's a skill. What a gift. Now he's reading, he's, he's more comfortable reading books and he like, he devours them. And I really literally have to ask him to stop reading and go to bed. This is the kind of problem I have, which is a good problem to have. Fantastic problem. But Arabic, he just doesn't want to read. Like he goes to the library, he doesn't pick a book. Like, you know, just pick a book. He says none of them are good. It's good. not fun. They're, the they're, books are they're not horrible, fun. he says. I said, okay, let's get let's play a game, get the most horrible book, and you know, let's let's make fun of the book. But I just need to find a way <laughs> to interest yeah. him. And he's not interested. And that's 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 the real challenge because and I've heard about it so much. You know, we have a lot of picture books, some of them you carry, uh, that target younger kids. Yes. So under seven. But you have now this age where he's interested in you know, science, in adventures, yeah. in yeah. and suddenly you have this gap. You know, there, there's, there's no content for these books for these kids. Exactly. And the language is so hard. So you have this disconnect between when he's able to decipher, it's just boring. And it's so much work. Kind of abstract into this a bit. What causes crisis in your view? I mean, why do we see so little in terms of reading in Arabic, not just children, everyone? I mean, if I look at, and I'm, I read quite a bit, if I look at the amount of reading I do, the percentage in Arabic, it is practically non-existent. I used to, when there were still newspapers, read a daily newspaper in Arabic. So that was great. On occasion, I'll pick up a piece of fiction or a writer that I miss and read a book. But the bulk of it, frankly, is not in Arabic. And then it translates all the way down to children. Why is there such a lack of interest in Arabic today amongst 
frankly, Arabic speakers, with very few exceptions. I think there are many different aspects to this, but certainly one starts, uh, you know, at the top in terms of political vision. Uh, like, you know, anyone growing up in the Middle East knows that nobody's encouraged, for example, to go into social studies or social sciences or whatever. Uh, it, it, this kind of, this is, I mean, these uh, areas are not valued. And when they are, anyway, most of these uh, universities end up teaching in English or in French. So uh, as a, as a, as a, I don't want to say culture because that's a complicated question, but as a region, there there isn't this kind of attention that's put on culture the way it should be from the beginning. Arabic like, culture. Yes. Well, I mean, just looking at the list of the entrepreneurs you interviewed, like all of them have this, you know, interest, you know, in, in our culture from language or different perspectives, but it comes at a very late uh, time, right? It, need, it needs to start at school, you know, from yes. the beginning. Yes. And we have all these dilemmas around teaching Arabic, you know, uh, Fusha, of course, I get it. It's very important. This is, you know, it's very, it's very enriching to be able to speak the same language with so many different people from different countries. But at the same time, uh, it can be alienating, right? So you, it's a very formal language. You come to school, yeah. you, you brought up speaking, you know, some kind of Arabic at home, and then suddenly you're asked to switch. And it's a very formal language in the sense where, you know, words are added, but, you know, uh, not at the same pace as they, they, they evolve in the in the spoken language right so there's a coolness effect as a result and I see this in my work you know when I sell rights because I'm a literary agent I manage translation rights you know along other things that I do um, of Arabic literature and one of my main challenges is to kind of you know try and convince people that we are cool right it's interesting it's good literature So if we think about bottom-up solutions for this, like practical solutions, because obviously top-down, that's a tall order. Yeah. In some ways, it, it actually doesn't make any sense because a lot of the jobs in the Arab world will still need you to speak Arabic and write in Arabic. So you would think there'll be a lot of emphasis on Arabic, but there isn't. Yeah. And you have an elite in most of those countries that predominantly speaks to each other in English. This is the reality of it today. Therefore, you're creating even more of a wedge yeah. between kind of the haves and the have-nots, right? On the street, you're speaking in Arabic. Um, and then amongst themselves, they're speaking in other languages, predominantly English, and then in, in Lebanon, some other Francophone countries in French. Which is reducing now today, but yeah. Which even that is being mm. reduced. So how do we make that more fun? Do we just, for example... Do they give grants to uh, writers so they can start producing more books? There are a lot of efforts uh, in that direction. There so, are. yeah, okay. so, but they, they, it remains like kind of, you know, they're, they're dotted right in that huge uh, space. Mm. I think today the, the web also plays a very crucial role because, um, and this is something also I've been always very interested in, like digital content. And I think it's super important, especially now if you think about all this AI generative, you know, kind of uh, uh, trends that we're watching for, you know, for better or for worse. What what place will Arabic have in there? Like, are the Arabic sets being used for these AI generative, um, you know, um, I don't know how to call them, you know, <laughs> things to actually produce content? So it always seems like in tech we are always one step behind, more than one step. Now there there have been efforts. For example, the Literature Foundation uh, had an initiative, and I was very happy to be part of it, uh, to you know to increase the volume of pages on Wikipedia in Arabic about Arab authors and more. And they reached their goal because they were able to kind of, you know, literally uh, create an army of Wikipedians. <laughs> they trained them and people in their contests and people had to create That's Wikipedia great. pages. I did not know about that. It's an amazing initiative. It's called uh, Katib Maktoub. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is the kind of thing I need that I think today can be attractive, can speak to the young audience because this is what we need. We, we need the young audience to feel that incentive because they are the ones, right, that, that, that we need to ah. invest in for the future. 
but also with AI and all of all of the things associated with generative AI, the technology also makes it easier to be a little bit lazy, frankly. In other words, for example, I leave voice notes in Arabic all the time. Mm. They get typed, essentially. I don't type them because it'll take me double the time. Mm. As a result, I noticed that I type in Arabic a lot less than a couple of years ago yeah. because there were many people I conversed with in Arabic and I had to literally type the messages. Mm. Uh, I don't worry about spelling, grammar, all of that. So I'm, I, I worry that this also changes, right? Um, very important skills like editing, like context, like learning how to not just write, write and speak properly. You can use Grammarly today. I use Grammarly sometimes. I don't know if you use it, but you can integrate Grammarly with your Word doc and Google and all of that. Yeah. And when I write you a little email, it'll completely fix all your sentences. Maybe you should use it. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and after a while, it's like anything else. You no longer check. Which is why I said for better or for worse, right? Um, there, there's you no doubt. generally look at this technology advancement as favorable. I know you are pro-tech in general. I mean, you kind of adopt, you, you have a positive view on this. Overall, is your stance more positive or cautious? Well, certainly in some areas, there's a lot to be um, gained. So my, my main interest in technology initially was... was precisely for the reason I mentioned earlier, which was digital content, especially for Arabic, because we suffer in the region of a very poor, uh, when it comes to the book industry, a very poor distribution network, which mostly relies on book fairs. And so I feel that digital can bring a very interesting solution uh, to, to this distribution problem. And we have many other problems like censorship, obviously. Uh, some publishers would complain, you know, you know, they'd say that's a joke. A at least if everybody could censor in the same way, so we'd know, we'd know how to publish. But so censorship varies across countries, which I think is a good thing because there's at least some possibilities to, you know, to, to, to experiment. But also, obviously, uh, purchasing power, currency, all of that varies, right? So, so it's one market, but at the same time, it's not. Uh, so it's very complex. And I think this really weighs down on Arabic publishing. And therefore, this is what I felt uh, where digital could actually play an interesting role in democratizing access to content and making it available very widely. But we're we're still lacking. And this is something like I've been saying for a very long time. We, we, we do like people, especially in our region, and that's, for example, where I feel technology has been maybe overused in not the right way. Publishers will mostly communicate on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, this is our new releases. This is our events. But these are not archived. Like you know, social media, like, you know, the information is there, but it does it, it does it disappears. Like once once it's down there so in your what, thread. So what would be a preference? What would be an alternative? You'd still need like, uh, you know, presence on the you know, proper structured presence on the web. Internationally today, um, it's been a while now, actually, you know, publishers agree on standards. This is how we should speak about our books online. Speak being like, these are the fields. Let's agree on a set of fields that are coded in the same way. We all use these fields and therefore, you know, the different databases can communicate with each other. So for example, and this uh, standard I'm referring to is called Onyx. And so all of these publishers adopt this, uh, you know, way of, let's say, uh, you know, uh, organizing information about book, the metadata. You know, metadata in the Arabic region when it comes to content is very poor because people don't know how important it is to structure, to maybe now more than before, but still not enough. Uh, what's metadata? Like I always refer to this example, like, Think of yourself as an archaeologist. You're out, you know, on a hike and you find a piece of something. If you take that piece of something, let's say, I don't know, let's say it's a vase or, you know, a spoon, you take it out of context and you take it home. It's, it has no value. 
because you don't know where it was taken. You don't know at what depth it was found. So you have no way of knowing what civilization it belongs to, uh, when it might have been created. It's just a piece of, you know, iron or whatever. It's both. It's the same for books uh, on the web, right? You need information about context. Who exactly. Who the author is, you know, what's the description of the book? When was it published? Who's the publisher? Uh, what's the category of the book? How long is it? And all this information needs to be codified in a way that systems can read them. And we don't do that in the Arab region, which really uh, prevents Arabic books from being visible online or digital content from really being visible online. When we come back, Yasmina and I talk about how our relationship with our identities and countries continues to evolve and define our work today. That's right after the short break. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with my guest, Yasmina Trisati. Do you have a sense for whether um, Arabic speakers consume more Arabic books that are written in Arabic versus translated? Is there data out there? So something we lack um, crucially in the region is data Okay. in general. But speaking to publishers... Uh, I would say that there is certainly a lot of appetite for translated when it comes to fiction or uh, popular science or self-help. You also, of course, have an audience for contemporary Arabic literature and self-help, for example, or you know, spiritual kind of content. But um, but if you look at also publishers themselves, what they produce, a lot of publishers, like mainstream, like leader publishers, have like you know, I, I don't have numbers, but from what I've heard, I would say 50% of their catalogs are translation. And who, country-wise, where do we see the biggest push? Is the biggest push here in the UAE? Is it in Saudi? Is it in Egypt? I mean, where do we see any um, particular countries or publishing houses within particular countries taking um, more of a leadership role? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the scene is shifting. It's been shifting for a, for a few years now. Initially, like, let's say, traditionally... It's Egypt, of course. Uh, Egypt was a very Lebanon big... And exactly. Syria sort of following. But Egypt is particular in the sense where it's a very self-sufficient market. Because there's such a huge market, they can produce and sell locally, and it's sustainable. But that's not true of Lebanon, for example, which is a very small market. Outward-looking. Exactly. So it has to be outward-looking for the for industry to survive. So, th so that's why uh, Egyptian publishing and Lebanese publishing are very different from this industry respect like a lot of egyptian publishers can even can even afford to publish in dialectal egyptian which in lebanon is unthinkable because who who would buy that content right if it was only in lebanon not enough people exactly uh, actually i think this is mis mis a misconception because we have a huge diaspora and I, and i think that's that's the main audience but you know uh, that's a different that's story. Not how they're thinking. If you're a small publishing press in exactly. Beirut, you're probably, the risk is too high. Harder to reach them as well, Yeah, right? exactly. But that's also what digital can, can bring you. That's a good point. And I know a lot of expats who are just longing for Lebanese content, especially for their kids. But that's that's a different story. But but so uh, so today, definitely, there's a shift towards, uh, I would say, the Gulf in general. UAE, yes, certainly. But I, I mean, uh, uh, Saudi has, has been investing a lot of, of money in content, all forms of content, in translation, in public. In, uh, it's cinema. also because they have a local market that can support that. It's not exactly. as big as Egypt, but Saudi certainly themselves all speak well. and write in Arabic. So exactly. it's probably somewhere between the UE, which is probably outward looking because the 
expat community here is not all Arab, right? It's mixed. Exactly. So it's um, a very so complicated Saudi market. So Saudi sits in a, good, in a good pole position. Exactly. In the Gulf, at least. Yes, exactly. So let's see how this is going to evolve. But it's, it's very interesting to watch now and see, you know, all the all, all the buzzing um, and, you know, energy bouncing in all directions. But so we need to wait a few years and see how we'll, this will settle down and how it will, uh, what shape it will take, let's say. Do you uh, consider yourself a, a pan-Arabist? That's a very tricky question. It is very tricky. And I'm not, I don't mean it in a political sense. No, I no, meant I it in the sense of when I was reading, doing some of the research about, uh, in preparation for this episode, it is, and I'm going to say this in the nicest way, uh, a lot of Lebanese people, especially, I think have an issue with uh, defining themselves as Arabs. Yeah. You did it very openly. I define myself very comfortably as an Arab, but I, I come from a country where that is pretty common. I'm, yeah. I'm definitely not breaking any, any any new ground here. In Lebanon, it's fraught with a lot of tension. Yes. Because, for yeah. obvious reasons. Yes. But you, I noticed that you have said it, you, it's, you've been quoted. So how do you define that for yourself? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the tricky part for me. It wasn't a political aspect. Uh, and of course, Lebanon has its own uh, history, which makes it a very complicated question for different reasons. Uh, I mean, I, I obviously had very, uh, you know, uh, painful identity questions growing up that I kind of dropped along the way. Um, I, you know, I don't define myself as anything, actually, which is interesting today. I mean, oh. but at the same time, I embrace many different things. So I lived in France for nine years and I feel like I belong to that place as well. Uh, I grew up in Lebanon and through Storytel, I had like a team, uh, a lot of Egyptian people, some Jordanian people, and I never worked so closely with Arabs outside of Lebanon, I realized, you know, and I, and so this gave me also a very interesting insight into these different Arab cultures, which I really enjoyed because I could see what we had in common, but how different we were. And that was very refreshing that, you know, and very simply, like, you know, uh, um, in many but small But can things. I probe just a bit here? Yeah. Why would you struggle with the notion of defining yourself as Lebanese, as Arab, I mean, Lebanese as an Arab, if you grew up there? I mean, we hear this, of course, a lot of um, Arabs that grew up diasporically or abroad. I think, That yeah. issue becomes far more in the foreground. But typically, if you grew up in, in that country, you have less of an issue with that. You know, I think I found an answer to that question very recently. Okay. You give is, us the answer? Uh, yes, I will. Okay. Maybe people will, you know, maybe I can help people out there yes. <laughs> in my situation. There's a lot of identity issues. Of course, you can help people. <laughs> um, you know, I thought growing up, I felt very isolated. I felt like I didn't belong in Lebanon because I felt like what I was aspiring to wasn't available for me. And I felt that there was no room for people like me. I didn't know what people like me Meant, but I felt like I didn't have from a space. sense of ambition, uh, from a sense of you know way of life, possibilities, way uh, of life. Yes, okay. in terms of you know what I what I what values I was you know aspiring for, uh, you know values I believed in. Um, you know, I was too young to think of you know profession at the time, uh, but it turned out, especially recently after the the October two thousand and uh, you know nineteen movement in Lebanon, which was you know I think could have been the start of revolution. Uh, I think actually. Millions of us felt the same way. Mm. So I think the identity problem in Lebanon is very political uh, because we are a very sectarian country. Uh, there is no unity. So it's, it's, it's a very Lebanese question. Yes. Even if you don't, and I was never defined at home as Christian politically, uh, but others define you 
other people tell you who you are and that's not how you see yourself. I see. And that's where the struggle comes from, which is why I was so uh, annoyed with the whole French speaking thing. And how did you free yourself from that? Because you said you- I traveled. Okay. I had to go very far, actually. <laughs> I mean- To regain it almost. Exactly. So I went all the way to Canada, was the first country I uh, went to live in. And with that distance, I could see better you know it's like looking at a painting almost really i could like a lot of the small things that really annoyed me like kind of really you know um disappeared and i could get a better sense of the picture and understand how i belonged uh without anybody telling me how i should belong or what i was but I, and i think it's still the case today uh because of all this you know in lebanon this whole financial crisis uh it, it exacerbates a lot of sectarian uh, reactions and i, I think Today, as you know, when I was a teenager, these questions are, are still on the table. And how do you teach your son when it comes to the issue of identity? Uh, I don't, uh, right. because I think it's very dangerous uh, to try and teach. But I'm sure he models after you. I would imagine probably. And he he, he also he, he like I think he just absorbs uh, whatever I or we uh, you know um, experience. So I, of course, I try to verbalize things. We go very regularly to Lebanon, uh, but I have to say, at some point, I was so upset that I just, I, I, I thought that's it. I'm going to cut the ties completely. You know, I don't want him to be Lebanese. It's very complicated. Period. Yeah. It's just too painful. Yeah, it's painful for you. Uh, exactly, yeah. and, and no, I don't no, I want him completely. to to yeah. to go through that. But but, but they experience something else. You exactly. See, because this happens to me in Egypt. I go back and I take my kids quite often, and I have a very different experience. They actually benefit enormously. And I speak to them even about the areas that I find painful. When you see, when you're from a place that you love and you see in certain areas, maybe it's not developing the way it should, it's actually going backward, et cetera. It's very painful. But I feel that the children absorb a different energy of learning and making decisions for themselves and getting to know the place with its good and its bad. Yeah. And we also, our views change. I mean, I can see very clearly from what you're saying that your viewpoint on Lebanon has changed. Yes, and definitely. And evolved over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's always a bit complicated, but uh, I, yeah, definitely. I can, I can, I have like a better, I understand the connection better, let's yeah, say. And you have a better coping mechanism. Probably. Yeah. Maybe it comes with experience. <laughs> it, it comes with, with experience and age, frankly. Probably, yeah. I, I really do. I, I buy that. I, mm. fe I find I have a better coping experience now. It's like, you know, a close friend. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you talk about countries like that. But then I know my triggers now. Yeah. And I know when they come, how to ride them. Uh, yes. You know, and get, and, and, and get out on the other side without feeling yeah. repulsed or having a very emotional reaction towards the place. And you know what you enjoy about them and yes, you know when too. you want to confront and when you don't want to confront and all so. of that. So recently I've decided not to confront because it was just too much to handle and I wasn't spending enough time there to waste it on confrontation. And so uh, I, I really wanted to like to to enjoy it in a sense where like when I especially when I go to the mountains, which I always took for granted growing up, but living here and having lived also to be fair in like major cities in the world, I can see how precious that is. Um, and yes. so like taking my son on hikes and stuff, and I, this is like this it's so gorgeous, and I'm so proud to belong to that mountain. But at the same time, now you have these people like you know destroying it. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, and know. so you know there's you, you need to you try to frame it. But there's always negativity in the way. Um, but yeah, so that that's, I think, where the identity crisis comes in Lebanon, uh, from, from this rejection and attraction that you have uh, of no, the place. It's, it's very similar in other places. I took my kids to Losor, and mm. from one side, you see this beautiful, gigantic, fantastic monuments and, you know, that, that civilization that was built. 
And another way, of course, I see, you know, a city that is neglected, that has no infrastructure, um, you know, a non-curated temples and museums where I, the experience could have been so much better. And you oscillate between feeling very proud of belonging to this yeah. culture that built that kind of civilization and being, frankly... Angry. <laughs> angry. And, and, and similar to you, what I've decided is to speak to both, certainly with my children. So while we were there, yeah. I was reflecting on both sides. I wasn't trying to yeah. pretend the other things didn't exist, but I also didn't just criticize because I don't think that's how I feel. No, exactly. And I mean, very interestingly, so my son loves going to Lebanon. His grandmother's there. Uh, uh, he sees his cousins, you know, and so for him, it's all joyful. And, you know, we, we have some ice cream, uh, you know, and so he loves it. But at the same time, he does sense he does sense it, like he knows there's something Attention. else. Um, and so, you know, he 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 saw the protests on TV. Uh, he he saw when we you know we landed, like the garbage you know bins burning on the road, the tires. He sees people with guns all the time, you know, like, like checkpoints and stuff. So you don't see that here or so, anywhere else. Like you see it in, in other places, but yeah, not but here, not yeah. the places where yeah, we go yeah, to typically. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, you know, one, once we came back from Lebanon, and he said, he said. In Arabic, but I would say it in English. Um, people here are not angry. I was like, wow. <laughs> Profound. Yes, he uh, he felt it. Like he, he felt that difference specifically. So it wasn't about, I mean, of course, he comments on electric wires hanging from the buildings, on yeah. the trash. This is easy, Like, he, but he sees it. But he, he felt that as well, that, that anger and that tension in Lebanon that, that he doesn't feel here. And I, I had to justify, you know, I let them know. Yeah, because they're expressing their anger. It's a good thing. You have to express, you know, it's, it's, they're right. They have to, they have to revolt because, you know, so I had to explain why they were angry. And then we, we went in such a political discussion. Wow. <laughs> he had all these questions. It was very interesting. So, yeah, they, they catch so much, actually. Tell us what is Storytel exactly, and what is the purpose of your? Uh, so Storytel is a is an audiobook uh, streaming platform based out of Sweden, um, but they have uh, many. I'm sorry about the Swedish part. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> but they have many local entities. So there is a Storytel uh, Mina, Storytel you know Italy, Storytel uh, you know Spain. It's a great name. So uh, Storytel is a great name. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, converges with my belief in digital content and my interest in content I'm making available. Your and expertise and, and interest. Exactly. Uh, so. And it's very interesting because it's all about audio, right? And how, you know, it's listening to Arabic content in this case, which I think, to go back to your question, would be great for kids. Is it a paid subscription model? Yes, it's a paid subscription uh, model. So how much do we pay, I pay monthly to have, a, and then I have access to unlimited? Uh, I think it's nine ninety nine in the UAE. And then you, we have different stores in different countries. But yeah, that's the price. And how are you able to compete with Audible and some of the bigger, like, you know... Uh, I can go, you know, the problem when you have these big giants like Amazon, right? Yeah, of course. Is um, that how do the small, it's sort of like the Netflix versus everyone else problem. Exactly, yes. How do you compete? They have such larger reach. They can make it three months free. They can make it forever free. I mean, for them, they can easily have loss leaders Yeah, but they, they don't have a lot of Arabic content. Interesting, okay. Um, the thing is with Arabic content, uh, it's that, you know, Amazon mostly, uh, or Audible, let's say, distributes audiobooks. Correct. They don't produce them. They produce mostly their own originals. Uh, Storytel is also a 
or the publisher, not oh, just a platform. Okay. And so Storytel actually invested in publishing uh, in publishing audiobooks. And this is not something that Audible seems uh, And are you seeing growth in, in subscriptions here in the region? Is there an appetite? Yes, there, there is, is growth, but it's definitely an emerging market. Uh, and people are not clear on what audiobooks are. Um, it's and they what don't value proposition there. Exactly. Because there's so much also free content out there. Exactly. Maybe rubbish. Yeah, but, exactly. But people are like, well, I can get this for free. Exactly. And that's that's maybe similar to what we saw with music uh, years ago. Uh, you know, they don't understand why they should pay for it, or they don't understand that once they stop subscribing, even if they listen to that book before, they can't access it anymore. So there's also an ownership situation. Uh, they don't get that it's a subscription. Therefore, it's more like a more like a library, not like a bookstore. So you're not buying to own the book. You're just buying access to unlimited books, right? Who narrates? I find voices are particularly important. Clearly. I'm a voracious consumer of podcasts, and there are some podcasts, not many, that I love, but I stop listening to because I cannot stand I the voice I of the person. And this doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. I'm going to leave them unnamed. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> preferably. So, yeah. so how do you handle this in audiobooks? I mean, Arabic, as always, is so complicated. <laughs> yeah, exa exactly. Um, and then I'm going to get to the accent element. But. Yeah, when uh, we, I mean, historically, there is a tradition of audiobooks in the region uh, in children content. So a lot of publishers of books would also sell the audio CD that goes. So that's a very old way of doing things ah. like so. So but we didn't have, you know, this. Uh, industry of audio recording. And so, you know, when they started uh, Storytel or Kitab Salty, they needed to find these people, you know. Yeah. So who are the best candidates? Is it the actor, the theater exactly. actor, the dubbing person? Is it a well-known, like they do it the in radio the kind person? of cartoon movies, you know, exactly. they bring the big names and they just give their Ben Affleck's voice. and Exactly. So it took a lot of time to kind of understand what was the best way. Uh, one major um let's say, blocker uh, or concern is uh, grammatical capacity. So because a lot of these books, not a lot of, all of the books, uh, maybe you read, you know, you mentioned reading some Arabic, but, you know, they're not so you don't have the, the diacritical. So you need to know the yeah. grammatical, yeah. Uh, you know, function so you of this superstar, word. So like Fifi Abdu may not be able to like, yeah, give you the notation right and then it's all over the place. Exactly. Sorry, so Fifi, a lot it's of, not you. A lot of superstars Very don't have this sufficient background in language to be able to read a, a book so what is the solution sound. i'm so curious now so they um i say they because i wasn't part of that part of the i was i came in later but you know they, they found out you know in the radio part or some in dubbing some actors are good if they have studied theater for example which requires a lot of reading and a lot of you know uh, strong arabic skills so now there are pools of narrators you have some names you know and within the industry you have famous names as well so you oh, know that's so interesting are known so the voice. The voice, exactly. Oh, that's fantastic. Because like there is the nose, right? Like, you know, people who are, they smell the perfumes, the exactly. nose, like Hermes would hire the Definitely, nose to yeah. come and... So now there's the voice. Exactly, there are voices. Okay. And so Can some I, people like throw in my hat into this the voice. I mean, it's not the same thing like The Rock, right? I just <laughs> want to be very clear that you, you understand my fame will be derived solely from my beautiful voice. Happy to consider yeah. your, <laughs> thank your you. sample. Thank, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So yeah, so that's been the main challenge. And of course, but then the, then on the other side, not everybody that can read properly can perform properly because it's about storytelling, right? You should be able to tell a story, not just read it. Um, so interesting. And yes, so of you have a balance to strike there that's very tricky. But recently, um, we were able to launch a book with a celebrity, and that was very exciting. Who's the celebrity? Uh, Ahmed Amin. So, okay. um, yeah. he, he, so we had an original, um, which is basically the, a biography of Ahmed Khaled Tawfiq, who's, who's uh, like 
a phenomenal author of uh, of uh, horror and thriller books in Arabic. He's a pioneer, and he has like he has a huge fan base, like like generations of Egyptian readers. You know, grew up reading his books and beyond Egypt as well. He's he's huge. That's fantastic. We link to that. I'm I'm not even familiar with with this at um, all. So it's yeah, so yeah, that's that's the. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, like there's a kind of um, uh, schism, you say in English? Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. definitely schism, a schism, yeah. Yeah, exactly, schism. In French, it's schism. So a schism between like these audiences, unfortunately. And I kind of ride into both, so it's interesting. So this is such an interesting story, Yasmina, because you had uh, a rebellious reaction, let's say, to, to something as you were growing up. You then adopted it, made it your own, and then essentially made it part of your cause or your identity and who you are and your purpose, and now you're living it. Exactly. <laughs> that's great. I mean, how many people can can tell that? I mean, that's a great story. You essentially took something that was, let's call it, upsetting you or bothering you. Or, yeah, my problem. And you, you appropriated it and made it a solution. I guess so, yeah. That's impressive. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Uh, it's my and therapist hat, which yeah, exactly. comes in. I never thought about this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, I'll surprise That's you it, sometimes. You know, now I'm done, you know. Yeah, yeah. I can retire. I'll surprise you sometimes. My therapist told me it's more about feeling, not doing. So this is my... Because I always start every sentence with, I think. Yeah. So now I'm like trying to feel. So how do yeah. you feel about that? Uh, I feel like there's a lot to do. Yeah, <laughs> there lot, is a lot. A do. lot more. So, uh, so yeah, I guess it's it's not over yet for me. I mean, there's so much more I want to do still. So. Akid, but do you feel a sense of purpose in the work you're doing now? That's that's the main drive, right? Okay. Uh, and because there's clearly a frustration, yeah. which we all share about what's lacking. Mm. But I have always felt that when you are working on a solution tangibly, whether through your work or hobby or interest, you feel a bit better about it because you are working with a methodology towards yes exactly and that, and that that definitely is what motivates you uh, so yes I'm, I'm lucky enough in that respect that I have this kind of motivation uh for work which which, which is which has very personal deep roots so it's uh um yeah so in that sense it's uh, it's pleasant I'd say uh, to work this way do you feel you know it's a bit like how people felt about environmental issues a decade ago everybody kind of knew it was there but no one really did anything about it do you feel there's a sense of alarm? Because frankly, I think there should be a sense of alarm about Arabic as a language, about losing one's identity, about the written word in general, of course, but especially in Arabic. I mean, it really depends. I get mixed signals. Uh, so, I do too. So That's what I'm asking. That, for, for example, there was this uh, state-led initiative in the UAE. You know, we had a contest where kids were um, encouraged to read. And the more, you know, the, the, I think it was 100 books. And, you know, the kids who managed to read 100 books and written reports about these books, they had like a huge cash prize in the end. So I think there was something in that direction. The point of it was to, you know, to encourage reading etc um so so this would come i suppose from a sense of urgency like something needs to be done about arabic but uh, i mean arabic i mean in terms of how attractive it is and how yes. useful it is for for kids especially today but on the other hand um you know there are many i mean it's not a it's, i don't feel like it's a consistent answer on many hands you have a lot of you know blockers on different things that you know that for example how how books move so difficult and with so much difficulty across the region and for different reasons uh or how um you know how you know we're lacking authors for example in, for children books you know when you compare to uh, english of course but even french which is a much smaller market than uh, than english uh, you still have many more like you know when any time i go to a bookstore in europe 
every time I get, oh my God, like, you know, so much, maybe too much. That's another problem. But I mean, so much diversity and so much specialty. It's, it's also not playful. And I'm not yes. just talking about children. It's very serious in a way that almost imposes some heaviness. Exactly. So I'm not finding it playful or interesting. No, exactly. So that, I don't know how we infuse that, that element of, of playfulness in. Language and reading should be fun. Yeah, and, and honestly, Arabic has a lot of potential for playfulness. Huge potential. Uh, like the, the way it's structured. Um, I mean, I think uh, some of the books you carry, you know, did some efforts in that direction, which is why I was really happy to, to cater, you know, to, to feature them. But they're like drops in the ocean. Like ah. You need so much more. And not only playfulness, but everything like uh, science, scientific content, you know, uh, and I love, um, I'm, you know, I'm a geek, so I love science as well. And yeah. that's also my background. So I'm, I'm really, I'm into like this non-fiction content. Um, you know, there's nothing really of interest uh, out there. Like, you know, so I feel like there's this, I mean, the thing is, I think for language to really, to really live and, and uh, thrive, it needs to be useful. It can't be language for language. And that's what I was trying to tell the teachers of my son, because I had a meeting recently, but I was not happy because he was not happy. So it's the only class was where he feels bored. And, you know, that's a problem for me that he's bored. Um, and I'm telling, you know, I was asking, are you just teaching the language or are you using the language to teach something else? It can't be, you know, you need to to, to you know, to use the language to give access to other things. If it's just language for language, it's going to be very boring, you know, and that and that's how they're taught. Like, you know, even when they do phonics in English, um, they do phonics, but it's it's part of other things. Like, so they reassured me, yes, you know, later when they know a bit more about the language, we will link things. But I always worry about, you know, I can, I just can't see myself, you know, and, and my experience of Arabic. Uh, and I think it's sad, like, you know, 40 years later, nothing changed. Just some specific advice. I'm sure you get this all the time. For parents, so we get this, I get this all the time as well, parents complaining that their children are not able to either find or read in Arabic. Do you have any advice? Um, what did you do with your own son to promote this? Uh, is it just literally daily sitting there and reading with him? So how do you, A, promote the love of reading? Secondly, promote the love of reading in Arabic. To, yeah, to, yeah, it's and is there a differentiation? Things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the love of reading, I think any parent knows, it's like if, if you love it, uh, you know, they, it's, it's contagious, right? So, so uh, I, I get very... But if very, you don't love it? Yeah. So you have to find a way, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> find content that you enjoy. Exactly. I exactly. think you need to enjoy it uh, so that your, kids, your kid enjoys it with you. Uh, that you, don't, you can't expect him to enjoy something you don't enjoy. So I think that for me, at least worked, uh, which is why, you know, it worked in the other way around. So anecdotally, my son started playing tennis and at 40, I decided I want to play tennis. <laughs> so I started playing. So, you know, I think it's contagious in both, in both uh, directions. It is in both directions. I agree with you. So, and I, and I enjoy that. Uh, you know that that I get things from him as well because you're curious. Be yes, because I am curious for sure. Um, that's that's true. That's the underlying motive, <laughs> probably, and that's probably the answer for yes. everything else. It is the answer, but the Arabic part is still tricky because, because of the lack of resources. Resources. Uh, so when he was younger, as I said earlier, it was easier because there there is interesting content, which is how we met actually. Because I had some interesting content to show you, like beautiful books, uh, interesting twists to the stories. You know, this is what I was looking for. 
before, and and he knew some of them by heart almost. Almost, you know, he loved them so much he knew them by heart. But now I'm struggling, uh, and I even spoke to his teachers, and I said, you know, I don't know what to do because there, you know, what what's out there for him. Um, and so, you know, and now I'm starting to think, what can I do uh, to incentivize? If it's not books, it has to be something else, maybe cartoons. And are there even like bookstores today that you can go to, and even if you want physical books or picture books, that where you can find good Arab content? I mean, all bookstores carry Arabic content, but it's very, um, in my opinion, it's very, not very high. it's very standard. Uh, you know, it's like, it, it feels like it's the... And I don't want to say the surface in a bad way, but it's just, you know, what you really need to have. But there is no specialty kind of orientation. There is no digging deeper. So we sell Little People Big Dreams, which I'm sure you know. It's a huge success. Many of those books in English. And now they've been translated, in Arabic, as you yes, all know, in Arabic. And we are starting to sell them. Now, I'm very happy to see that because I'm very happy to see any Arabic children books selling. But again, most of the protagonists are... You know, from yes. the West, right? But so, that's because it's a it's a Western publishing house. Hundred percent. Yeah. So you're learning about you know Pele and Michael Jordan and uh, you know Curie and Marie Curie and so on and so forth. So, but that's where the market is. So again, they are maybe reading in Arabic, but the content, the content is, is exactly. entirely Western focused. Yes, and that's that's a problem we've always had. Uh, Again, less it's it's changed with earlier years because then people got you know there were more and more aware. Uh, Kalimat here in the UAE did a, did a huge work on you know children books. They have a, a very uh, big collection of content, and you know so there was a lot and of effort. to them. They're trying really hard. Really, exactly, and they and their books look look beautiful, honestly. Yes. Uh, but and you have a lot of other efforts. Like there is this uh, very small, uh, and you have you have some of their books. Or you had some of their books at least. Uh, house in um, in Morocco, they do beautiful content. So no, we still have them. Yeah, the exactly. Yeah. The, the, with the illustrated by Fidawi, so you have some, you have some like great initiatives, but but that's true of everything, isn't it? Like you know, um, even when I listen to podcasts, this is what I said earlier. So if I listen sometimes to ninety nine percent invisible, for example, which is an American podcast, and the amount of archive they have access to to do their research, like there is this fascinating uh, podcast that they featured once called Articles of Interest. She's like she's a, she's all about uh, fashion but in a very interesting way. And it was all about where does the laid back uh, so-called basic look come from, like wearing chinos or jeans or... So she goes back in time and we we learned that on a particular street in the New York Harbor at, you know, in the, at the turn of the 20th century, there was this guy who was in charge of, you know, receiving textile. So there is so much information that's just archived and accessible. In our region, it feels like if it's archived, nobody knows about it or where it is. So I think we have a systemic systemic problem. I don't know uh, why or how to solve it, but as a result, um, our achievements are just not uh, you recorded. Know, yes, and they're not used or or made available to the public. So and we and we always because we are. It feels like we're always one step behind. It feels like we should have a you know an uh, an Arab you know ninety nine percent, but it, that's not how we should be thinking, right? Uh, in many ways, Korean culture is doing a great job, and you're doing something similar as well in your own in your own space, like you know featuring these characters. Of course, it is in English, but that's the other way around, right? It's in English, but featuring you know Arab, Arab personalities yes. or or Arabic I'd love, to do it. I'd love to do it in Arabic. Yeah, I think it just again to your point, uh, there, there are these um, practical limitations. Yeah, some of my guests are not comfortable speaking Arabic. Yeah. So the conversation changes. And I think th there would be a different audience for it as well. But frankly, even my own comfort zone, like I'm sitting now, I hope, very comfortably. <laughs> when I used to be in banking and I used to sometimes go on on um, on these uh, finance um, 
specialized channels and on television, I remember it used to be like very anxiety provoking because I wouldn't know some of the professional terms, finance terms in Arabic, and I would feel very, very ashamed. Yeah. And I would try to look them up before, but then sometimes I'd mix them up. Yeah. And then I'll start sweating and there's this like big light on you. Yeah, that, <laughs> like, that's the... That's, <laughs> this is really not I mean, a this is experience. the story of my life, right? Yeah. <laughs> but today I get, you know, I just, um, I just don't care anymore. Uh, Bravo. I used to be very aware. I was very afraid, you know, but now I just don't care because I know that I have a different... I mean, I think my relationship to language evolved. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely relate to what you're what you're saying. That's amazing, Yasmina. Um, this has been a great and wide-ranging conversation. Thank you. Uh, you have such an interesting story. My pleasure, really. I love I love these conversations. It's very um, uh, great, uh, gratifying. Thank you. Thanks, Yasmina. Thank you for joining us. If you know of someone who'd love to hear this episode, please send it to them. You can follow Yasmina on LinkedIn. We've linked to her in our show notes. The Lighthouse Conversations is hosted by me, Hashem Montasser. Our producer is Chirag Desai, and our content director is Farah Sharif. You can connect with us on Instagram at the Lighthouse underscore podcast for behind the scenes videos and a lot more. You can also listen to all our previous episodes in your podcast app or at thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. We'll see you again in two weeks.